Ten years ago today, on January the 14th, 2011, the Tunisian president, Zine El Abidine Ben Ali, fled the country. This is what popular uprising looks like. After weeks of scenes like these across the country, resulting in dozens dead. A state of emergency is in place and the entire government has been dismissed. I know this is the first Arab revolution of the 21st century, or it will be brutally suppressed. Ben Ali was the first to fall, unleashing a tidal wave that swept across the Middle East, toppling tyrants and rulers who had an iron grip on power for decades. It was the vanguard of a revolution. But what's happened to Tunisia in the decade that's followed? It's the only country where democracy really took root, but at what price? When they revolt, they hoped that their life will change for better yet. But after 10 years, things they are getting worse and worse than even before the revolution. How did all of that hope turn to disillusionment? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Arab Spring, 10 years on. Tunisia. We start in the place where it all began, in mid-December 2010, in the small, deprived city of Sidi Bouzid, in the centre of Tunisia. I was last there in November. Yeah, there's kind of one main street that's lined with cafes and small restaurants. The main square has a post office on it. Leili Faroudi is a freelance journalist who writes for The Times, she spent the last two years in Tunisia. There's a big monument in the middle that's of a fruit cart, which is actually a homage to Mohamed Bouazizi, who was the young fruit seller whose self-immolation sparked the revolution. His face is also on the, like a graphic of his face is on the post office. And on that same square, there's a, a gate that says on it, Museum of the Revolution, which is a, a plot of land that's been earmarked to also pay homage to the revolution, but actually nothing there has happened. So it's just a, an empty piece of land at the moment. <laughs> Seems like a metaphor. And they're clearly sort of embracing their role in starting off this revolution that eventually sort of spread across the Middle East. How important was Sidi Bouzid in the whole of the Arab Spring? So Sidi Bouzid was a spark. Think that Sidi Bouzid's why did it happen there? You could say that it was and still is an area in Tunisia that is marginalised. It doesn't receive investment. The interior and southern regions of, of Tunisia are marginalised, say, compared to the coastal regions. And so you had that feeling of indignation, dispossession amongst people there. Also, there's strong family links. So when I was there in November, I spoke to someone who was telling me about the day when Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire. His mother went to the place in front of the governor's building where he set himself alight and she was crying and and shouting calling on people to 
rise up to react to what had happened. And she actually, she was calling on the, she said like the people of Hamami, which is the larger family. So she was calling on their larger family to come and to react to what had happened. Mohamed Bouazizi set fire to himself outside the gates of this building, the governorate in Sidi Bouzid. Many now credit a young Tunisian man, Mohamed Bouazizi, as the spark for the uprising. This young man, who had never been particularly active in politics, went to the headquarters of the provincial government, doused himself in fuel, and lit himself on fire. And, and what do we know about Mohamed Bouazizi? I mean, we all sort of saw this horrifying moment where he set himself alight and it's just such a unimaginable and sort of visceral, you can't imagine what would drive somebody to do that. What do we know about his life that led to that level of desperation? Mohamed Bouazizi was a 26-year-old fruit seller. He lived with his mother and his father had passed away. He would earn not that much. I spoke to some of his friends when I was there who said that he would earn 20 dinars in a day, give 15 to his mother and then like spend five to hang out with his friends in the evening. He wasn't political or explicitly political or outspoken against the regime, but he had suffered at the hands of its police and, and then used policies that neglected his region. So his friends said that he would complain about the police and how they would always confiscate his fruit and then give it back after he would pay a bribe. And that was what happened on the day that he set himself as that his fruit was confiscated. I think that it was the third time that it had happened that week. Then he went to the administration to try and complain and have something done to get his fruit back. And no one would accept to listen to him. In sheer frustration and desperate to be heard, Mohammed set himself on fire. Within hours, the people of Sidi Bouazid took to the streets. Mohammed's cousin Ziad spoke to us. He'd joined the protests, and in January 2011, he travelled to Tunis, the capital, as the revolution took hold across the country. On the 9th of January, I, I came here because I was proud of having Boazizi family name. Yeah. Yeah. So I joined people here in Tunis, just, I mean, at least so I can, like, make my voice here, here in Tunis rather than just in Sidi Bouazidi. I was arrested, you know. I don't remember yet. They took me. We were like 44 person by that time. We were arrested, 44 person. They took us to the police station and they asked for our IDs. When they found out that my name is Yed Bouazizi from Sidi Bouzid, it was like they found like a piece of cake by that time. They asked all 43 person just to go out to leave the police station and they spend, I mean, like the night celebrating with me. When I say celebrating, I lost four of my teeth by that time. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you lost four of your teeth. What yeah. happened? Well, they were punching me. They said, oh, yeah, you are from Boazizi family. It was like like a celebration for them, yeah, just to release their anger on me. So I lost the four of my teeth. You. By the way. you lost four of your they, teeth. That's right, yeah. They were beating me. Yeah. Ziad laughs about it now, but he was tortured for weeks. He still can't sleep on his back because of the beatings he suffered. And he wasn't the only one. More than 300 people were killed and more than 2,000 were injured in the revolution. Lokman Radadi was one of those who was wounded. Leili told us his story. Lokman Radadi is now 31, so he would have been 
21, 10 years ago. He's from a neighborhood on the outskirts of Tunis, the capital called Etadaman. 10 years ago, he was sitting in his neighborhood with a friend. They knew that there were protests happening in the other parts of the country. It was just arriving to, to Tunis. They saw a police officer in civil clothing and they were kind of disturbed by that. They didn't want him in their neighbourhood. And then a, a group of young people got together and it turned into a conflict with the police. So they were far away from the police, but throwing rocks at them to, to just get them to leave. And the police were shooting at them. So a bullet hit Radadi's leg. After passing through his friend's neck, his friend died from his wounds and Radadi was taken to hospital. <laughs> this was on the 12th of January, so he was kept there in a dark room. He had no idea what was going on, whether he would walk out a hero, whether he would be punished for what he had done. It was dark. They didn't know whether it was morning or it was night. They were just lying there. And then on the 14th, a woman ran in shouting, Ben Ali has fled. And he said that, that was just this kind of moment of relief and elation in the room. He definitely had reason to be angry with the regime. His father was killed in 2003 after being imprisoned and tortured since 1992 for being part of the Islamist movement in Nata. Lachman himself was unable to get a job anywhere because of his father. He said that employers really? were pressured into not hiring him. And his mother was also tortured. She told me that she was taken along with other women to the Ministry of Interior building. She was stripped naked, hung by her feet, soaked in dirty water while her kids were left at home alone. She said that the police would guard over the house to even make sure that the neighbours didn't go and help them. It's still very difficult for her to speak about the fact that her husband was left to die, like he wasn't given the treatment that he needed. She wasn't properly made aware of the extent of his injuries. She was told that he was going to get an amnesty. And at this point, he'd actually already passed away. After the revolution, the new government set up special courts to look into state crimes committed by Ben Ali's government. Lokman Radadi and his mother are two of the 204 cases that are still being investigated as part of this transitional justice process. Ten years on, none of them have been resolved. Although Lokman has found a job, he says everything is still on hold, with his case and with life in general. But what did the revolution achieve? Where did it succeed? So now Tunisia is a place that you can freely speak about what you want. You can criticise the people governing the country. You can insult the people governing the country, which people often do. And people protest for their rights. There are free elections. In the 2019 elections, the winners were outsiders, so people that were not part of the existing political class, showing that Tunisian voters were able to express their dissatisfaction with the ruling class. For your average Tunisian, has life got better? Tunisia today is in an economic crisis. Life is much more expensive than it was before. Really? The dinars 
halved in value compared to the dollar in the last 10 years. And so you speak to people, they'll tell you what they could have bought with 10 dinars 10 years ago. They now have to spend 40. Just buying basic things like meat is difficult. I have a piece in the Times about how people have had to increasingly needed to sell their family gold just to pay for rent and for healthcare because the public health services are in a really bad state. In that kind of material sense, conditions have become difficult over the last decade. One historian I spoke to described it as the revolution as having cut off the head, but left a lot of the, the system that was there before. Unemployment has risen from 13% in 2010 to 16% now. And among young people, who were the beating heart of the protests, it's risen to 36%. Last year, protests broke out across the country again. Are they a continuation of the same revolution? Yeah, I think so. So I was in the region of Tatawin, which is in the south of the country, where there was a social movement that had shut down a fuel pipeline to kind of put pressure on the government to create job opportunities and development in their region, which has been historically marginalised. And I spoke to someone there who was a... He's a teacher and he was a dissident under Ben Ali. And he described what was going on today. He drew a direct line with the revolution, saying that the revolution opened people's eyes. They had the freedom and they were able to see their oppression and so demand more. We'll have more from Tunisia in just a moment. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. So given that, given that there hasn't been much justice dispensed yet, despite the fact that it's 10 years on, unemployment is higher than ever, prices are more unaffordable, do people regret the revolution? What's the general feeling now? I think there is a section of society that regret the revolution. There is definitely some nostalgia for the old regime. One way you can see that is through the popularity of this politician called Abir Musi, who was a senior official during the Ben Ali regime. She was even the lawyer for his party after the revolution. And she says that the revolution was a foreign import. I think she's called it an American import, an Israeli import. So she's very disparaging about the revolution. And she's now, according to the polls, her party is the most popular in parliament. I remember she spoke a lot about the price of meat, the price of vegetables, how they'd risen. She also spoke a lot about the lack of security, the need for a, a like a strong state. So I think when living conditions are, when people are like materially struggling, this can lead to a certain nostalgia. And what about the current president? I mean, is is he popular? Yeah, so 
Interestingly, Abiy Musi, who I just mentioned, her party is the most popular in parliament. But the most popular politician, according to polls, and also as we saw in the election last year, is the president, Qais Saied, who he is definitely the opposite of nostalgic for the old regime. He was elected on a revolutionary ticket, saying that he was going to bring back the revolution, was going to give a voice to to the young people in the different regions. And he was voted in with over 70% of the votes in the second round last year. He's a, a socially conservative law professor with no ties to any political party. He had no electoral campaign machine, which helped him because there was this collective discussed with the political class. So he came as someone from the outside. They called him like Mr. Clean. And he was also interviewed a lot on TV when they were forming the constitution as a law professor. He was um, interviewed in the years after the revolution. He participated in the various sit-ins and protests that happened after 2011. So you have these two, you could say they're like the two most popular politicians that demonstrate the very different feelings that there are towards the revolution that happened 10 years ago. And what about going right back to the start and the man who it all began with? What's happened to Mohammed Bouazizi's family? So the direct family of Mohammed Bazizi, they left Sidi Bouzid, they left the country and now live in Canada. So his sister went to Canada to study and then afterwards sought asylum, as did the rest of the family. Their asylum claim was based on the rumours and everything that were going on around them. So they left the country to go to Canada, which is somewhat symbolic as well, given the really widespread desire among Tunisians to leave the country and to migrate abroad because of the lack of opportunities here, including one of Bouazizi's cousins that I met who now lives in Tunis. He has a job. Mm. His wife has a job too, but he wants to leave the country because he says it's, despite that, too difficult to, to live here, to be able to really? to buy a house. What, what else did he say? I mean, how does he feel 10 years on, having lost his cousin, his family dispersed, and it's still too hard to live? He describes a certain feeling of disappointment, that things haven't got better. He told me that he, as someone who is part of the family of, of Boazizi, he gets jibes from his colleagues. His colleagues would say, like, oh, Boazizi fucked up the country. He gets bothered by, really? the, by the police when they see his ID. Boazizi says his surname has been a curse ever since the police knocked out his teeth 10 years ago because of it. Having the family name Boazizi, it's a curse here in Tunis. It's, it's more like a curse. That's right. It's a curse. Why? It's a curse, you know what? Because the majority are living like a social, economic and political crisis. Yeah. And now we are, they are like saying, Boazizi family, they are the cause root of this, like the, those crises that we are living right now. When they revolt, they hope that their life will change for better. Yeah. But after 10 years, things they are getting worse and worse than even before the revolution. Before, I mean, we we're like fighting against one corrupted family. But now we have, I mean, Hundreds of other families, they are just, I mean, taking everything. But like the normal people, they are not having anything. Although, you know, people's living conditions are still pretty desperate, 
they do have a different government now and they do have a popular president, which does feel like a change. Why do you think it is that democracy in that form has endured in Tunisia, whereas in many of the other countries where we sort of saw the Arab Spring catching fire, it felt like they kind of went back very quickly to a very similar system that they had just got rid of? Each country has its specificities, cultural and historic. There are a number of reasons that Tunisia's democratic transition happened in this way. Perhaps one is that Tunisia doesn't have a strong army to enforce a dictatorship or to back a political coup. In fact, the army sided with the protesters during the revolution to protect them from the police. Perhaps also it's not kind of resource rich enough to have been victim to the proxy wars that we saw like in Libya. There is also a strong civil society in Tunisia that kept pressure on the leaders to keep their promises of democracy, to back down on harmful legislation. Do you regret taking part in the revolution, taking part in the protests? Honestly, yes. To be honest with you, yes. Yes. Because like in one year, we have like four governments in one year. Do you think you need a new revolution? Sure, yeah. Maybe it's not the right word just to say it. But we need like... A bloody revolution, sorry to say that, but we need just a bloody revolution. When we check, I mean, when we compare between the Tunisian revolution and the French revolution, the French revolution, it was like a bloody time, but they were able just to build France as it is right now, yeah, a democratic France. We need just, I mean, something similar like that. Would you take part in protests again if there was another revolution? Yes. You would? Yes, yes. I'm ready to just like, you know, I mean, like someone who is like ready to just expose himself. I'm ready for that. If they just be called for another revolution, for sure, I would be in the first line. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times contributor Leili Faroudi and Ziad Bouazizi, who took part in the revolution 10 years ago. You can read more of Leili's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Asia Fuchs, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Batella. If you can, please do leave us a review. And if you'd like to get in touch about any of the stories you've heard or any that you'd like to hear, then please do email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.